Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. I am, again, so thankful that, uh, that we can come together and just... Man, praise our risen King. What a wonderful song to, to kind of enter into this uh, sermon that we are uh, praising and worshiping and loving a risen King who, as Ethan said, has dealt with our sin. Now, we are, of course, still in the book of Hebrews and we're in Hebrews chapter 8. And so I'm really going to challenge you this morning to open up your Bibles to chapter 8 um, and uh, not rely on the screen because, again, I used the wrong version, so my bad. Um, but uh, if you need a Bible, feel free to snag one. We've got plenty uh, over there on the resource shelf, so we would love to give you guys one. Um, but uh, open them up to uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Now, last week, we spoke quite a bit about copies and shadows, right? And we learned how the, the tabernacle and the temple were shadows, how the office of priest was a shadow, how the animal sacrifices and even the feasts and dietary laws on, on top of that were all shadows that were cast by the one true reality. And as one theologian said, when Christ came those shadows began to melt away. They were no longer needed because He Himself was the reality, right? He is the great high priest who offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice, presenting His sin-cleansing blood to the Father in the true heavenly tabernacle where He now sits at the Father's right hand. Now all of those things just mentioned, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and, and all the rest were, were essentially like pieces of a puzzle that when put together, the picture that is revealed is, is the Old Covenant. And the author has been laying the groundwork for several chapters now for what he is about to say in our passage this morning in verses 6 through 13. And the summary of it all is really found in verse 13 when he says something profoundly important to his Jewish Christian audience. And something that is not only profoundly important to them, but, but important to us. Because he says, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So Jesus did not come only to fulfill and therefore do away with just, just a few pieces and, and parts of the Old Covenant, but rather, as verse 6 tells us, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, meaning the ministry of His, of his great high priestlyhood versus the old priestly office. As the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so the entirety of the Old Covenant was a shadow that was cast by the New Covenant that Jesus was bringing into the world. And now that it is here, the, the shadow has, has faded away, made obsolete due to the grandeur of the New and the far better promises that it makes. And God in the New Covenant, He was... He was coming to forge a greater, 
stronger and more perfect relationship with His people. Now before we look into this new covenant that has come to replace the old and the rest of this passage this morning, let us first pray. Lord, I thank You so much, God, that we can be here this morning. Lord, I thank You, God, that, uh, that we came here to, to praise and worship a risen King. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, that uh, You help us focus in on Your Word this morning. God, I pray that You protect us from distractions. Lord, protect us from, from everything in this world that wants us to take our minds off of the face of Your Son. And I pray that Your Holy Spirit guides us in truth as we look at your word. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Now, unfortunately, like well, many words really in the Christian faith, the word covenant can sometimes be used in church without it being fully defined, right? And we can, we can say the terms Old Covenant and New Covenant without actually fully understanding what they mean. And we, and we're, we as Christians, we can, we can sometimes be really good at doing this. We can, we can say words like atonement or, uh, or justification. And when somebody actually comes to us and asks us what those things mean, we're like, uh, you know, it's just good stuff, you know. And that's kind of where we leave it. And that's really a shame. It's, it's really a shame because the word, specifically the word covenant itself, carries a tremendous amount of significance within Scripture. And so if you don't mind, let me quickly define it so that we can all just be kind of on the same page throughout this sermon. So you can actually think of a biblical covenant, a biblical covenant as a bond that God initiates and forges between Himself and His people. So let me say that one more time. A biblical covenant is a bond that God initiates and forges between Himself and His people. And this bond is based on a set of promises and curses. And when we say the Old Covenant, we are speaking specifically of the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses after He rescued them from Egypt. And you can find the account of all this and the, the details of this covenant in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. Now, in a very small nutshell, the terms of the old covenant that God set forth with his people was, was essentially this He said, If you love me and if you obey the law that I set forth, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, then I will bless you. And not only will I bless you, but, but you will be my covenant people, my, my beloved people. But if you disobey me, and if you break your side of the covenant, then I will judge you, and I will remove from you my favor. But there was an issue, of course, with the old covenant. Verse 7 says this, it says, For if that first covenant, referring to the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion, no reason to look for a second. And so obviously there was a fault with the old covenant. There was a problem with it. And this fault was so significant that it couldn't simply be patched up, but it had to be completely replaced. 
And what is so amazing is that the Old Covenant, actually, because of this, was never meant to be the end of the story, right? We've already said that, that all of the components to it were, were simply shadows of the reality that came in Jesus. And so the Old Covenant was simply the, the shadow of the new. It was never meant to be the only thing, the, the last thing. Now what is incredible is that the author of Hebrews here is about to quote, in our passage this morning, is about to quote from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, where God speaks to that very fault of the Old Covenant. But not only does he speak to the fault of the Old Covenant, but then he, he mentions, or he, he preaches, he speaks on how he will overcome that fault in the New Covenant. And so I want us to first take a look at verses 8 through 9. 8 through 9. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. During the time of Jeremiah, all the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, was actually split into two kingdoms, the uh, Israel and Judah. So that's why he mentions both, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he's not only speaking of them, but eventually the Gentiles who would be grafted into God's people as well. So he's going to establish this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but not like the covenant that I made with them or with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, what I want you to take notice of in this passage is where the fault in the old covenant was found. Did you... Did you see it? It is found in the phrase, for they did not continue in my covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant. You see, the problem of the old covenant was, was not found in the laws that, that God gave to the people or, or that the promises that He, that he made to them were, were bad promises. Not at all. But rather, the fault was in the ones whom He made the covenant with. The problem rested in the people's inability to keep God's law. That was the problem. So it was not the stipulations of the Old Covenant that were bad. It was that the people had bad hearts. And so as you read through the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, a, a pattern emerges, right? There will be times of, of national obedience and, and worship of God that is quickly followed by, by these great times of disobedience and, and them following after the false gods of other nations. And as the people broke their relationship with God in judgment, He would turn away from them and He would withhold His care. And this is the precise thing that was happening in the time of Jeremiah. As, as God's people, again, had shattered their end of the covenant in hard-hearted disobedience. And they were about to be given over to the Babylonians in divine judgment. They were like an, an unfaithful spouse who refuses to uphold their wedding vows. In fact, this is why God even says in Jeremiah 3.8, For all the adulterers of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. So the fault of the Old Covenant 
in the end was really that it could not empower the people to obey the law. So even though this this law was given to them plainly, their side of the covenant was given to them plainly, it was taught to them, the law was taught to them by Moses and then uh, by the priests and then eventually rabbis, they still turned their back on God. They still broke the law. They still broke their side of the old covenant. As one theologian says, there was divine forgiveness and patience in the first covenant. There was a call for faith in the first covenant. There were promises of God's law in the first covenant. But by and large, these things did not penetrate into the people's hearts. It was mainly external rather than internal. Ritualistic rather than personal. It was obedience by willpower, which was destined to fall short due to sin. Now friends, all of humanity is really in the same boat here. What kept the old covenant people from being able to to keep their end of the covenant and obey God's laws was their sinfulness. And while all of humanity was, was not in the old covenant, of course, sin still is our fundamental issue too, right? You see, the greatest problem that humanity faces right now Friends, it's not not geopolitical. It's It's not disease and illness. It's not interpersonal. It's not not politics. It's not even the culture war or anything like that. That is not the greatest problem that humanity faces. But the primary problem that humanity faces is that we have hearts that are made of stone. We have hearts that are sinful and dead, spiritually speaking. And these stony, sinful hearts are at odds with God and have an aversion to obeying His law and are deserving of eternal punishment. That's our problem. And so friends, this is actually why mere legalism can never be a way to salvation. Ever. Ever. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are many people within our culture who will say that because I'm a good person, If there is a heaven, then I will no doubt get in. Right? We've heard that a lot. That is the primary way legalism is articulated in our time. If I do enough good deeds, or if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, or or maybe if I don't do all of the, uh, maybe if I don't do all that many good deeds, as long as I don't do really bad deeds, right? As long as I am my own definition, my own definition of a good person, then I will earn myself the right to go to heaven. But friends, the fatal flaw of this way of thinking about salvation is that it does not take into account the sinful condition of the human heart and the seriousness of that. And so friends, it doesn't matter how many good things you do because in your heart, like so so many in the old covenant, is rebellion to God and His law. Jesus says in Mark 7, 21-23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, uh, wickedness, deceitfulness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. They defile a person. What's in your heart defiles you. 
sinfulness, your sinfulness defiles you. And this is why legalism cannot work. This is why you cannot earn your way to heaven. Why Jesus says there is no one but God who in and of themselves could ever, ever be called good. Because your external behaviors are only part of the problem. The real issue is your heart. And friends, we live out of our hearts. And by nature, they are fallen and wicked. So the problem of the old covenant people and and our problem is is really the same. These, These sinful and wicked hearts and an inability to keep God's law. And our need is also precisely the same. And we, we desperately, and they desperately, needed an inward transformation. An inward transformation through the receiving of brand new hearts. That's what's really needed. And by God's grace, He promised a new and better covenant that would accomplish that very thing. So I want you to take a look at verse 10. It says, This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so friends, I hope you see the monumental importance of this passage. Because it's easy to skip over passages like this, but this, is, this, is, this changes everything. There's another Old Testament prophecy that speaks to the coming of the new covenant. It's Ezekiel 36. And in this prophecy, God promises to reach into His people and, and pull out that stony, sinful heart that was at enmity with Him and rebellious to His laws. And what does He promise to do? He promises to remove it and then put within them a new and soft and fleshy heart. That's the promise that He makes in Ezekiel 36. And then here in our passage of Hebrews, we are told that He is going to take His law and He's not going to write it on these external tablets of stone that cannot create a love for the law and a love for God, but He will write those very laws on those brand new hearts that He gives to His people in the New Covenant. Friends, this is nothing short of a radical internal transformation. That's what's being described here. What is being spoken of here is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is becoming a new creation. A brand new creation. In that passage, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has, has placed their faith in Christ Jesus, the bringer of this new covenant, they are a brand new creation. The old has passed away. The new is here. The new you is here. They have been given brand new hearts that are no longer at war with God. They no longer look at His law as something to be detested and rebelled against. Those in the new covenant are given hearts that now beat for Christ and have an affection for His law. An affection for His law. Because they can now see it for what it truly is. 
as Romans says, tells us, just, holy, and good. And it is emblazoned onto the very hearts and minds of the people in the New Covenant. And through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the New Covenant people then have the ability to follow God's law with joy. Not in a legalistic way that, that really glorifies no one but the self, but in a way that can truly please God because they can now follow the law simply out of a heart of gratitude. And what is so wonderful is that for those in the new covenant, our obedience is not what keeps us in. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? Because that would be impossible. Keeping the law perfectly to keep us within a covenant would be impossible. But our entry into and staying within the new covenant is based on Christ's own perfect obedience to the law that He already accomplished on our behalf. Amen. How great is that? But Christians, upon entry by faith into the new covenant, of course, does not mean that we're going to immediately begin to obey God's law perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. Talk to my wife. She'll let you know. Don't talk to my wife. She'll. But friends, we, we grow in obedience as we grow in our walk with Christ. As one commentator said, if you possess eternal life through faith in Christ, you have experienced at least something of this. You start wanting to do things you never wanted to do before, while old pleasures seem disturbing. You find yourself eagerly attending church, praying, reading the Bible, serving others, while shunning evil more and more as Christ leads you and God writes His law upon your heart. So friends, how wonderful is this new covenant that we have? Now again, this does not mean, as I said already, that we're not going to still struggle with sin. Because we certainly will this side of glory. But it does mean that through this incredible work of the Holy Spirit, as we continue our Christian walk, He will cause us to look more and more like Jesus in obedience and love until the day we meet Him face to face. That's a good promise. And this is the beautiful truth spoken of in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Where Paul says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. With ever-increasing glory. Which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Yeah. Now there's a, uh, a beautiful end to verse 10 that is the result of having these new hearts in the laws written upon them. In verse 10, God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, being quoted by the author of Hebrews 8, that I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this means, friends, that those within the new covenant have an unfettered relationship with God Himself. Andrew Murray once wrote that personal, direct fellowship with God is the crowning blessing of the New Covenant. Man, it really is. 
And though that relationship with Him can be strained from our end due to sin that we are still putting to death day by day, that relationship that we have with God cannot and will not ever be broken. And that's a promise that we see again in Romans 8. There's nothing that can break our relationship with God. And if you are a true Christian, you can with all confidence say that He is your beloved God. And that you are His beloved people. You can say that with all confidence. Knowing that that's the truth. But it is important, friends. It's important to know that entry into this new covenant relationship with God is actually both exclusive and inclusive. Entering into the new covenant relationship with God is both exclusive and inclusive all at the same time. And this is something that that our culture just simply does not like to hear. It is exclusive in the sense that entry into it can only be found in Christ Jesus. That's it. Scripture is very clear that there is only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus, in His work on the cross, and in His resurrection. Christ Jesus Himself actually makes this very clear in John 14, 6, where He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through who? Me. Through Christ. And it is, this, this truth is repeated throughout the New Testament, such as in Acts 4, 12, where we're told plainly that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. It's only in Christ. Friends, we are, we are not universalists. We do not believe that all religious roads lead to heaven. That is the clear teaching of Scripture and something that we can never back away from. But, while entry is exclusive through Jesus, friends, it is also wonderfully inclusive. So wonderfully inclusive that we we are told this in verse 11. We are told, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Why? For they shall all know me. They shall all know me. Let's just pause there for a second. Remember, knowing God in the Old Covenant was based on external obedience that could only lead to this this partial, veiled relationship with God. But friends, that that is not the case in the New Covenant. That's not the case at all. That's because our relationship with God doesn't start with obedience. Friends, it starts with faith. It starts with God the Spirit taking up residence in your heart, bringing you from spiritual life to, or spiritual death to life and giving you that new heart that, that loves Him. And this means that for everyone who is truly a member of the new covenant, we, we don't have to tell each other, hey, you need to know the Lord. I need to make sure that you, you know the Lord. And Why? Because verse 11 says, for everyone who's in the new covenant, they shall know me. You know God. If you've put your faith in Christ, you already have a deep, abiding relationship with the very God who spoke creation into being. 
And you experience that relationship now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you will experience it all the more when Christ comes again. So how wonderful is that, Christian? You know God. You know Him. You truly know Him. And what is even better is that you are known by Him because you are included in the people whom He loves. 1 John 4, 7-10 through 10 speaks to what it means to know God and to be His people. And I'm not sure if we have that passage or not. I was a little delirious last night when I was doing uh, slides, so who knows what's up there. Hey, look at that. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Listen to this. In this, the love of God was made, uh, made manifest among us, that God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Not that we were, we were so uh, faithful to Him before we came in Christ. Not that we loved Him. And so He, in response to that love, loved us back. That was not the picture at all. It's despite the fact that we were enemies of God. Despite the fact that in our hearts we actually hated the biblical God. But in this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. That He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the payment for our sins. That's what that fancy word means. The payment for our sins. But verse 11 of Hebrews 8 gets even better by saying, For they shall all know me. And not just the best of us, right? Not just the theologians or, or the seminary professors or the pastors. No. It says, For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. From the least to the greatest. Friends, the new covenant that has been established through Christ is no respecter of earthly status. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. And Jesus made this absolutely clear in His parable of the great banquet in Luke 14. In Luke 14. I know for a fact I didn't get this one up on a slide. So if you open up your Bibles, go to Luke 14. Because I, uh, I want to have us all read it. Not... not Together, you know, in unison, but I'll read it and you read along. Luke 14, starting in verse 15. When I hear the rustling of pages die down, that's when I'll... I can wait. I'm not hungry yet, so I can, I can go all day. All right. It says... Or Jesus says this in this parable. He says, When one of those who reclined at the table with him, this is Jesus speaking or, uh, about Jesus. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant 
to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. There's more room at this banquet. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, friends, this is an amazing parable. There's a lot of truths that are wrapped up in this parable. But we are, we are to take on the role of those servants. We are called to take this, to take this call to repent of your sin and to place your faith in Christ and join in this indescribable new covenant. We're, we are called to take the gospel and be like the servants in this parable. We are to share it with everyone, regardless of who they are. We are to go to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Friends, we are to go under highways and look under hedges. We are called to go to the ends of the earth and compel people from all walks of life, all walks of life, to come and taste the goodness of the gospel. That's what we are called to do. And friends, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter at all what you have done in your past, whether you grew up in the church or in a gang or in a cult or, or where you stand on the social ladder. Because in the new covenant, we will all equally, from the least to the greatest, know our God in a great and wonderful, intimate relationship. But for those of you who have not placed your faith in Christ, you know, also heed the warning that is in this parable. The people he originally invited to this banquet made excuse after excuse after excuse as to why they could not come. One said that he had to go see a field that he just bought. Another said that he had to go examine some livestock. Another said that he had just married his wife. And if there's, a, if there's an excuse, that's it. And therefore, he couldn't come. And friends, you can, you can make excuse after excuse as to why you can't come to Jesus right now. But as Jesus says in verse 24 of this parable, at the very end, those who keep putting up roadblocks, those who keep making excuses as to why they will not come to faith in, in Jesus and partake in the new covenant will never taste the banquet that is being prepared in heaven for all those who believe. And so, friends, I urge you to think about your life, to think about your sinfulness and need of a Savior and a true loving relationship with the God who created you. And I, I urge you to put your faith in the only name that can save. Now, all these things that we have spoken of so far were really impossible under the Old Covenant. 
because, just to recap, the law was given to the people, the law that was given to the people was inadequate to empower obedience. And so God in the new covenant solves that problem by the work of the Holy Spirit, by creating within us, by, by giving us a new heart. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are now given a love for God and a love for His law, and we are given the power to obey it more and more as we are conformed to the image of Christ. But there is still a problem that has yet to be addressed, which is the guilt that we carry from not only our past sins, but from the sins that we will soon commit in the future. Now, the Old Covenant was able to deal with past sins, but it could not deal with future sins. And as we have mentioned before in past sermons, this is because of the inadequacy of the Old Covenant sacrifices. As we we mentioned, the high priest, they offered animal sacrifices that through the grace of God were able to atone for the sins of the people committed in the past, but because they couldn't do anything for the sins that they would still commit in the future, they had to have this unending, this never-ending need for the blood of animals to cover up this never-ending stream of sins. But in the New Covenant... There was only one sacrifice needed that completely took away all guilt and shame of not just sins of the past, but but friends, all sins, all of them, past, present, and future. And it is actually this sacrifice that enabled everything that, that comes within the new covenant. Verse 12 says this, for, and this for is very important here, This four is very important. This four means that everything that just came before it hinges upon what's coming after it, right? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now the word merciful here in the Greek is actually the root word that is used in the description of the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Essentially, it's lid. And this was the place where the blood of the sacrifice was brought by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, the the inner sanctum of the temple, where the golden cherubim rested atop of the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this symbolized God's throne from which He looked down upon the broken Ten Commandments that were actually kept inside of the ark. And these broken Ten Commandments were actually the first set that He gave to Moses, but were broken by Moses when he saw that the people had, while he was on the mountain receiving these commandments, in record-breaking time, crafted a golden calf to represent God and began worshiping it. A very blasphemous act. But the high priest, he would come before the presence of God, representing all of the sinful and wicked people of Israel, carrying with him the blood of the sacrifice. The blood was then poured out upon the mercy seat, so that when God looked down, he no longer saw the law that was broken. He no longer saw the law that was transgressed. But what did he see instead? He saw the blood that paid the debt of the sin, right? And as a commentator noted, we might 
well read the promise of verse 12, therefore, as saying, I will be mercy seated toward your iniquities. And so, friends, this is how God forgives our sin. By the blood of a spotless sacrifice. In writing this prophecy, we are looking at, in Hebrews 8, Jeremiah was looking forward to the coming Messiah, to Christ Jesus, who is identified by John the Baptist with these words in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, God is merciful toward our wickedness. When we acknowledge our sin and put our faith in Christ's blood that was shed for us. And this was actually signified in the Last Supper. Jesus took the cup of wine and gave thanks and he used it as a symbol for his sacrificial death. He told the disciples in Luke 22 verse 20 that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is because of Jesus' death received by faith that God promises that He will forgive their wickedness. So friends, this, this means everything for us. This means that when He, when he looks down on us, right? When he, when he from heaven looks at us, He no longer sees the law that we broke. Do you know that? He no longer sees the law that we broke. But what does he see instead? What does he see instead? He sees the blood of his son that purchased our salvation and the righteousness that he won for us. That's what he sees. Now not only will he forgive us of our sin. But the second part of verse 12 says that he will remember them no more. He's going to remember them no more. Isaiah 38 verse 17 illustrates this idea really well. When God says, behold, it is for my welfare, or not, uh, sorry, Isaiah was saying, behold, it was for my welfare that I have great bitterness. But in love, you, God, delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. He has not only forgiven us of our sins, but He has, he has taken them. He's, he's just bundled them up and He has cast them behind His back so that He no longer sees them. He no longer brings them up and holds them against us. Amen. He remembers them no more. And believer, this is a wonderful truth because even though you may struggle with forgetting your past sins and holding on to them and holding them against yourself, and even though others in your life may do the same, you can be certain that God never does. He has thrown them behind His back. He has forgotten them because He has forgiven you. And He has cast your sins as far from you as, as far as the east is from the west. Friends, in the New Covenant, God has dealt with sin once and for all. And this is actually what allows you to stand before God totally free, totally justified, made right in His eyes, no longer condemned. And this means, friends, that, that if you are in Christ, you belong in His presence. How beautiful is that? 
Friends, have you ever been in a place where you, where you felt like in, in your very bones that you didn't belong? Have you ever been to a place like that? Now, for me, an obvious example of this is actually Ulta, the makeup store. <laughs> I don't know if you fellas have ever been in one. A man stepping into that place with my wife was like a vampire stepping into the sun. You know what I mean? Like, it, like I could feel it burning my skin just being in there. And I knew, I knew I didn't belong there, right? For many reasons. But for you, maybe it's, it's, it's your workplace. You know, maybe, maybe you feel that way about, about your own family. Maybe, and I pray that this is not the case, but you feel like that when you enter into a church. But believer, if you are truly in the new covenant through faith in Christ, then there is no place that you belong more than in the presence of God your Savior. There may, there may be times where you don't feel that. You know what I mean? Where you don't feel like in your heart that you, that you belong in His presence or that, that you are worthy to be in His presence. But through Christ... Friends, there is no place that He wants you to be than right there with Him in His presence. You now belong with God as His beloved child. And so Christians, we, we belong to a wonderful and beautiful new covenant that is founded on these better promises. And we have already received some of these promises now. We, we have a new heart. We have the law of God written on our minds and these, on these new hearts. We have experienced the mercy of God and the forgiveness of our sins. And we can even now have a true relationship with our Lord and Savior. And what is so wonderful is that as good as these promises are that we have already received now, there is, man, there is still more yet to come. There's a glorious day when all of the promises will be given to us in their fullness. And until that day, friends, let us rejoice in this new and better covenant. Please pray with me. Lord, we are a sinful people. In and of ourselves, we do not have what it takes to please you. As hard as we try, God, we cannot perfectly obey your law. And the sad reality is, is that without those new hearts that you promise us, God, we don't even want to. We may want to, Lord, obey a God of, of our own making, but we don't want to obey the God of Scripture. But God, you, you Lord, in your love... Even though we didn't first love you, you chose to love us instead, or despite that. And you showed us the ultimate expression of that love by sending your son, Christ Jesus, to die so that our sins could be taken care of, so that we could be given new hearts that love you and want to obey you. Not because that obedience will, will earn us salvation, or keep us in the new covenant, but because, Lord, we just want to thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, I thank you so much that you have brought us into this new covenant relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray that, that Lord, as we go further into this walk with Christ, we just grow in obedience, and we grow more and more in love with you day by day. And I pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.